Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 Good morning. Good to see you. Glad you're here. If you have a Bible, guess where we're going? Romans, not only Romans, Romans chapter 8, we're finishing up this chapter, the greatest chapter of the greatest letter of the greatest book ever written in human history. I got my hair cut yesterday and uh, was talking to uh, the lady that was cutting my hair, and uh, she asked me what I do, uh, which normally my answer really shuts down the conversation with people fairly quickly, Um, but I told her what I did, and she said, oh, that's great, what kind of church? Uh, And sometimes that's a, I just don't know, that's a loaded question sometimes, I'm not sure what they're looking for. Sometimes that's a very generic answer. Sometimes they're looking for a very specific genre answer. And I was trying to ask some questions, feel her, and she's like, are you all, y'all a Christian church? I said, yes, Christian church, Jesus, he's the hero. She said, uh, what do y'all teach? And again, I just don't know what I'm walking into sometimes. That's a loaded question, maybe a generic, maybe a very specific answer. She's looking for, I started to kind of give an answer. She said, do y'all teach the Bible? I said, yes, that's our book. We love the book. We love Jesus. We're a Christian church. Church teach the Bible. So uh, hopefully by now you know that this is our textbook. Really don't deviate much from it. Uh, and uh, it's just been super uh, fun walking through uh, the book of Romans together and especially chapter 8 uh, these last few weeks. So I want to frame this as kind of like a journey into the mountains, which I've used this analogy uh, a little bit the last couple weeks. Um, but let's pretend that the book of Romans is kind of working into this mountain range. And uh, as you begin to look through chapter Chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's laying some foundational truths that we need to believe about uh, the sinfulness of humanity, uh, the holiness of Jesus, the righteousness of God. And as he builds these foundations, we just keep climbing. Uh, I'm going to make the case that uh, this is us ascending to the top of the mountain. The end of chapter 8, it's the climax, really, it's the crescendo of this entire gospel treatise that the Apostle Paul has put together. And we 
get to the top, this most incredible, profound truths, and then the rest of the book is us standing on top, really, of the gospel and kind of looking out at how that affects our lives. So I am excited uh, to get to, in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, before I get there, uh, you need to know something important about me is that I love free things. Uh, I'm somewhat cheap, and I love free. That's why when I was 16 years old, I started drinking coffee uh, because I found out very quickly when I started driving that everywhere I went to get my oil changed, free coffee. You go to Lowe's, and I always go in and out the contractor checkout, which I don't know if that's a sin or not, but they have free coffee. We take the coffee. You just go anywhere, and there's free stuff, and I, so I love free stuff. Uh, Hannah and I were spending our 10-year anniversary, uh, and we wanted to go on a trip. Um, so I started doing some research, and I found this uh, awesome deal, 70% off of a trip to Mexico if we would go through a like, day-long, very high, intense sales pitch. And, of course, I'm like, yes. I love free stuff. I love discounted stuff. Who would not want to spend their 10-year anniversary being bombarded by salespeople? So we did it. We sat through the uh, day-long spiel where they're telling us all of the unbelievable, incredible things about their, 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 their deal, right? And inevitably, at the end of all that, then you're kind of skeptical. You kind of ask, man, that just sounds so incredible, so awesome. Like, they're willing to give the entire country of Mexico to us for free, 0%. And then you start asking questions like, okay, I know there's a catch. What's the fine print? It sounds like it's just, it's too good to be true. What are the things that I need to know? What's going to cause some problems in this? And, and a good preacher, which the Apostle Paul was a good preacher, and he's the one that wrote the book of Romans, uh, basically he is anticipating some questions, getting up to the top of this mountain of the gospel, the glory of Christ, the gift he's given us in Christ, and as he gets to the top, he's anticipating that this sounds so good, some people are asking the question like, what's the fine print, what can separate us, what's going to break this, what is going to be the, the catch that I'm just not aware of, because it just it sounds too good to be true. And if you have been along the ride with us, in, in the book of Romans, I mean, I think there's a way in which you should feel that. You should feel like th there has to be something else because the, the, what has just been unveiled to me about the gospel that God, before time even began, he knew who I was. He set his affection on me. He decided to send Jesus Christ, his only son, to die in my place. He called me. He justified me. He glorified me. He's wiped away my guilt, done away with my shame, conquered all the things that I fear. I have done nothing. The only thing I've contributed thus far is to sin, and everything I have been given is just this unbelievable promise in Christ. And so, like, a, like, a, like, really like an attorney or like a good lawyer, Paul is anticipating the questions that people are going to have. And the end of Romans chapter 8 is the Apostle Paul anticipating four questions and rhetorically really asking and answering those questions. And basically, he's asking, like, is there some fine print? What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ? And I know this. I know that... There's a tendency to ask these questions, especially if you have ever been hurt in a relationship or if you have ever had a relationship with someone and that relationship, some things were promised and they were not performed. You were promised that they would never leave you, never forsake you. They would always be with you. And then over time, maybe, maybe father, maybe mother, maybe a spouse, maybe a friend, they, there, there's something that at the end of the day broke their love for you. Then there is a tendency for us to ask that question and project that on God. 
God because if we have been hurt, uh, if we have been uh, abandoned, if we have been abused, we will tend to think, is there any way that that can happen to me and Jesus? I know the promises of Romans are incredible, but can I mess it up? Will Jesus ever decide he's done? Will he become impatient with me? Will he become frustrated with me? What's the potential that this goes sideways? What about if I'm weak? What about if I continually sin? What if I continually struggle? What if God changes his mind? That's the questions that Paul is going to answer. And really, they all four can be summed up in what I think is the central question that every Christian will encounter, whether it's consciously and, 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 and overtly or subconsciously in our minds, in our hearts, um, that really the big question that every Christian at some point is going to encounter is how Paul says it. Can anything separate me from Jesus and from Jesus' love? So that's the four questions um, that he is going to unpack for us. So if you are in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, give me a hearty from the gut, ready, Two of you did awesome. The rest of you work on your guts. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? And he's a, he's, a, he's a sharp thinker, he's a good preacher, and he is thinking and anticipating what questions people are going to have. Uh, just so you know, I, I try to do this. I try to think about as we present a text, and as I'm preaching through things in the Bible with uh, all the different experiences in the room, uh, with the things that are going on culturally in this moment, uh, in this moment of time in our country, what are the questions and what are the pushbacks? What are the, the, the things that we need to answer as we preach through God's Word? So Paul is doing that. He's just explained for chapters the, the glorious nature of the gospel, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and then he poses the question, what then shall we say to these things? Question number one is this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Question number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? What Paul is not saying is, I wonder if God is for us. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. What, what he's doing is he's assuming that, yes, in fact, God is for us, and because God is for us, who can be against us? And, you, you know, one of the things that convinced Paul that God is for us is very basically the cross that Jesus has communicated that he is radically for us because he gave his life in our place for our sins to reconcile us to God. So, like, some of you, maybe this is the takeaway for you. Maybe the, the gold nugget for you this morning was just simply the fact that you need to know and you need to believe that God is for you. I think there is a lot of Christians that don't believe that God is for them. They think God is some way against them. They think that maybe he is uh, frustrated with them or at best he's indifferent to them but not actively, aggressively for you. Right? I have three kids, two of them are on the front row here, and since the moment they were born, really before they were born, when we knew they were coming, I have been radically for them. I want them to thrive. I want them to be healthy. I want their the best life. I want them to, to learn and to worship Jesus, and I want to protect them and provide for them. Like I am very, very radically for them. You need to know if you're a Christian that God is for you. Like That's good news, that God is absolutely for you, wants to protect you, wants to provide for you, wants to direct you. So some of you may ask the question, well, if God is so radically for me, then why doesn't he give me everything I ask? Parents in the room would say, because he's for you, right? How many of you parents in the room, you do not give your children everything that they ask for, right? 
Why? We are more radically for them even than they are for themselves. Can we agree that we're all pretty much for ourselves? This is not a trick question. If you're for yourself, raise your hand. We don't want you to be only for yourself, like that's not good, but to be for yourself, that's good. You need to know that God is more for you and he knows more about how to get you from point A to point B than you do. So you might ask the question, well, if, if, if he doesn't give me everything I want, what does that mean? That means he's for you and he knows better than we do. Maybe you ask the question, well, I don't know if God is for me. Why does it seem like he's disciplining me sometimes when I get off track? Those of you who have children, why do you discipline your kids? Because you're radically for them. So maybe this is it for you. You just, you need to be convinced that God is not fighting against you. If you're in Christ, he is radically for you. And Paul's question is, if or therefore, because God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, this is not saying if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, there's not ever going to be anybody against you. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be any suffering or any persecution or any resistance. Everything else he's written in Romans thus far would say the exact opposite. Like if you're in Christ, there's going to be people against you. So he's not saying that that there won't be anybody against you. He's just saying if God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. And so I thought all week, what is a good analogy to try to express this? And I came up with uh, a goofy one that kind of works, so I'll lay it out. Hopefully it's helpful. How many of you, when you were growing up, you played any kind of pickup games? Like we went to the park sometimes on Sundays after church, and we played pickup basketball games, and there'd be kids lining up all around the basketball court. And normally you'd have two team captains, and those two team captains would get to alternate choosing their teams. You would choose one, they would choose one until you had five teams, and then you'd play, right? And winner keep the court. We never kept the court. We were the short white guys. We didn't keep the court. But let's say that you got all these little kids lined up, and then all of a sudden you look down at the end, and Michael Jordan is standing on the end, right? Goofy analogy. I know. And you're the team captain, and you get to choose. Who are you going to choose if you have first choice for your team? Everybody said? (laughs) Michael Jordan, right? Who is the other person going to choose? It doesn't matter. It does not matter. They're like, I don't know. Billy's pretty good. He's got a killer crossover. It's like, yeah, he's 10. It doesn't matter. If you have Jordan on your team on a pickup game, it does not matter. Paul is saying, listen, if God, which he's proved, proven through the cross, is for you, it does not matter who is against you. If, if the one who spoke the, the, the cosmos into existence, his, his, his words are that powerful, If he decided beforehand that he's going to send Jesus and he orchestrated his plan and carried it out perfectly and he has thought about you and set his sights on you, saved you, justified you, glorified you, if that God is for you, uh, Paul is just saying it just doesn't matter who is against you. And just like Jesus, just like Paul, there's going to be people and forces against you. What Paul is trying to say is not diminish those that are against you but raise the one who is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? And the question I think that begs is, how do we know that that's true? Verse 32, this is question number two that Paul poses. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So most of these, there's a little statement and then there's a question. And so Paul's statement is that God did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. So if that is true, then here's the rhetorical question. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
And if you were listening to this, you were a recipient in the Church of Rome for the first time and you had any understanding of the Old Testament or the Jewish culture, that phrase, spare his own son, would have really quickly drawn your attention and your gaze to Abraham and Isaac. Do I remember this story? Some of you, you're brand new to the Bible, you're brand new to church. I'll sum it up fairly succinctly. Uh, This is in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. God decides that he is going to do something on the planet with Jesus, and he wants to do that uh, through a man that he just sets his affection on named Abram. So he chooses Abram, and he shows up, and he speaks to him, and he makes him a promise. He was an old man, and his wife was an old lady that was barren, and he promises, I'm going to make you physically into a great nation, and through you, all the nations or every single people group on the planet will be blessed. Pretty pretty incredible promise for God to make to an old couple that didn't have any kids. But Abraham says, and we read this in in Romans, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And so over time, God fulfills his promise, gives them a miracle son, this incredible promise that he kept. Uh, He has a son named Isaac. And then when Isaac is a full-grown man, God asks him to do something that has not made a lot of sense, honestly, to me over the years, but I've pondered it. God asks him to sacrifice his own son, the the heir of the promise, the one who he was going to use to bless the entire nation, and so, or really the entire world. And so Abraham takes Isaac, and they're both, I think they both consciously know what's going on. Isaac uh, was the young man, strong, strong back. Uh, His dad, Abraham, was an old man, so he carried his own wood for his own sacrifice, and they march together up this mountain um, that's called Mount Moriah. And when they get up there, the son just lays down on the table with the the wood that he carried himself, and Abraham gets ready to sacrifice him with a knife. And he raises his hand to sacrifice his son. He was willing to do that. Hebrews 11 says that he had so much faith in God that he believed even if he did that, God would raise him from the dead. And then all of a sudden it says the angel of the Lord, not an angel. Uh, Throughout the Bible, when it talks about an angel, that's a generic, like it may be Michael, it may be some, some archangel, some messenger from God. But when it says the angel, it's talking about Jesus. So Jesus, pre-incarnate, shows up, and he tells Abraham, hold off, and then they kind of dedicate the top of this little mountain, this really small space on the top of this Mount Moriah, and they call out to the Lord, and they give him this name, Jehovah-Jireh. How many of y'all have heard that word? Jehovah-Jireh means the Lord will provide, which at, at, at the basic element of this question, verse 32, is will the Lord provide? And so this whole story, it's like, yeah, Abraham had faith in God, and he was willing to give his son. So he's praised for being willing to, although he didn't actually have to go through with it. Some of y'all, maybe you've never heard of Mount Moriah. Um, Actually, you probably have. You just didn't know it. So this place where Abraham trusts God, believes God, was willing to sacrifice his own son, they call upon God, and they say, your name is Jehovah-Jireh. You will provide Uh, over a few centuries, they changed the name of the mountain um, that you know of that mountain as Calvary. And at that very exact moment where they, they, they didn't even know what they, I don't think they knew what they were saying when they said the Lord will provide. What they were saying is that Jesus was the better Isaac and that Jesus would carry his own 
wood up to the top of that hill to Calvary, and him and the Father would work together, and he would agree that he would march up this hill to the exact same spot. Moriah would become Calvary, carrying his own wood for the sacrifice. And yet, in that last moment, when Abraham was, was withheld, God did not withhold his own son. He went through on Calvary with Jesus being separated relationally from the Father because he took upon himself your sin, my sin, and died in our place for our sins. Now, can we agree that for God to not spare his own son, to give Jesus to die that kind of death in our place is a very generous gift? Can we agree? There is, there is nothing. There's nothing in his possession that he could have given that would have been more valuable and more costly. So this is what Paul is saying. If God didn't withhold the most valuable thing on in the cosmos, Jesus, then surely he won't withhold anything lesser for you. Like if God is for you, who can be against you? And he says if he w- didn't even withhold his own son, then surely he will not with us graciously give us all things. That he's a good father, that he's proven. Like he's proven he likes to bless and he is generous because of Jesus. I think this is one of the main reasons that Christians should strive to be generous. And I'm not talking just generous with tithing, just generous with first fruits. I'm talking about just a posture towards others of generosity because we believe in a God that is incredibly generous. And so a Christian to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and to become like him is going to have a heart like him that begins to be open-handed with our time, uh, with our homes, with our money, with our things. But this, this, this question, this promise is, he has proven that he will give good things to his kids and he's proven it by his son. Question number three, verse 33. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's anticipating somebody who has been, been, been in step with him all through Romans 1, through Romans 8, and that we're with him, and then we're, he's anticipating that we're going to feel this condemnation, and we're going to hear a condemnation, and we're going to hear some things that cause us to doubt whether we're a Christian, whether Jesus really loves us, whether he is, in fact, going to fulfill his promise. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He says, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. If you are living your life as a Christian, I think inevitably you're going to feel this condemnation. Feel, and it comes normally from three different places. And we're going to tease through each one of them and what Paul is saying about these feelings of condemnation, which what he's saying is basically uh, when somebody brings a legal charge against you saying you're guilty, you're not good enough, you'll never add up, you keep messing up, I don't think Jesus loves you, you're not really a Christian. When those condemnations come at us, what do we do or what do we believe? The first place that they normally come from us is from other people, right? And especially people from your past that knew you before you were a Christian, Maybe even people from your present that see you and they, they know your life. And I don't know if anybody has ever said this of you, um, but maybe they'll say things like, I don't know, you, you claim to be a Christian, but your life doesn't add up. You've got all these problems. You've got all these struggles. And they just bring this condemnation that would cause you to doubt God's love for you. Somebody was doing this to uh, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is my favorite 
preacher. I loved to read his sermons and his books. He was preaching in London in the 1800s, and somebody was verbally attacking him and condemning him, and how he responded is classic Spurgeon. Uh, they were just like lobbing all these fiery arrows at him. I'm like, well, you're this and you're that and you're evil. And he said, if you knew me, you would know I'm much worse than that. <laughs> He's like, it's actually much worse than you think. Good news is, is that Jesus says I'm forgiven. And so when you bring condemnation, it doesn't matter what you say. What matters is what Jesus says. So the first way we feel condemnation is through others. And it just, you need to know if you're in Christ, it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what their opinion is of you. What matters is what Jesus says. And he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, right? The old is gone, the new has come. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's number one. Number two, oftentimes the condemnation comes from ourselves. Some of you, you're very hard on yourself and you, you condemn yourself. You think, I'm just... I'm not good enough. I just I keep making these promises. I'm never going to sin again. I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to do better. And, I, and you just keep kind of speaking this guilt and this condemnation over yourself that's going to cause you to doubt Jesus' love for you. What's interesting is that I think the apostles dealt with this probably more than you and I do. I mean, could you imagine if you were in a small group with Jesus? you would have a little bit of an inferiority complex. Like you're always staring God in the face and you're always coming short and there's always something where you're doubting, like Am I re- do I really add up? So I, I believe like the apostles probably struggled with this idea of thinking that uh, they're condemning themselves. And so I think it's incredibly powerful what the apostle John, Jesus' best friend on the planet, had to say. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. He says, for whenever our heart condemns us, right? He's not preaching to people and saying, now you people, now whenever your heart condemns you, no, this is something that apparently the Apostle John dealt with. He says, whenever our heart condemns us, that means when this feeling of guilt comes not from without but from within, what do you do with that? Whenever your heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So what about when somebody else condemns you? It doesn't matter. What matters is what Jesus says. What about when when you condemn yourself? Good news. It doesn't matter nearly as much as what Jesus says about you. Number three, the only other option, if it's not somebody else condemning us externally or us condemning ourselves internally, the only rightful place condemnation can come from is Jesus, right? He's the righteous judge that's the only one that can actually point out our guilt and could condemn us. Do any of y'all remember the story of the, uh, the woman that was caught in adultery and brought to Jesus? Uh, if you don't know the story, it's a very colorful story uh, in the New Testament. There were some religious leaders, the Pharisees, that were uh, really trying to trip Jesus up. And you find that they would go to incredible lengths to try to do this, to trap him, to, uh, to shut him up, and to shut him down. And so they, it looks like they orchestrated this event where this woman was caught in this trap that they had set up, and it says that they caught her in the act of adultery, and I, I just, you can't help but think that they were so excited about that because they drug her. They didn't do anything with the man. They just show up with this woman, and they bring her to Jesus, and they say, functionally, they say, Jesus, we know that the law is if she commits adultery, she needs to be stoned, so we need you to kind of take care of that. Do that. 
mean, he was the one that was standing in the judgment place as the rightful judge, and they were really excited about this at the cost of this woman and potentially her life. And what happens is Jesus bends down, if you all remember the story, he bends down and he writes something in the dirt. And I wish, like there, there's some things in the Bible that, that I wish had more detail. This is top of the list. I, want, I would love to know what Jesus wrote in the dirt. Whatever it was, it was enough to change these people's minds incredibly quickly. Most theologians think he was writing actual, these guys' names and their very specific sin. So he starts writing, and all of a sudden it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they turned and walked away because Jesus said, as he's potentially writing sins, he says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And they walked away from the oldest to the youngest. And then he's, he's met face-to-face with this woman, right? Who, he's the only one who can rightfully stand in judgment over her because he is sinless. When he says... Whoever is without sin cast the first stone. That leaves only him as the rightful judge. And she had sinned. And what did he do with her? He did not condemn her. He said, go away and and sin no more. He, He gave her forgiveness instead of grace. And if you're in Christ, you need to know that the only person who can rightfully stand in judgment over you has decided instead to forgive you and to justify you. That's exactly what it means. Who can bring any charge against your elect? Your neighbor? No. Yourself? No, it doesn't matter. Jesus, Jesus can. But it is God who justifies. The one who can condemn is the one who out of love and grace has decided to instead pay your debt, die your death, forgive you, justify you once and for all. There, this is what it means. Romans 8.1. There is therefore how much condemnation? None. When you feel that, you need to know that what Jesus says matters and he says you're justified and he is ever interceding for you. Question number four, verse 35. What then, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? And really this is the summation of the entire argument and the questions that he is anticipating. Is there anything that can separate a Christian from the love of Jesus because the love of Christ is what links us to all of these promises? And then he begins to run through the potential candidates that could separate us from Jesus. Number one, what about tribulation? Can tribulation separate you from the love of Jesus? Tribulation is very simply suffering and problems and trouble. Have you ever had suffering problems, and trouble, he's saying, did that separate you from the love of God? Number two, he says distress, which is just very simply hardship, difficulty, or the bad side of stress, right? There's two sides of stress. There's good stress and there's bad stress. There's good stress we call stress, which is like working out. If you go and lift weights, you're in a good way. You're stressing out your body. So you need to change the way you say things. Don't say you're going to work out. Say you're going to get stressed, but then tell people, but it's the good stress, And then you go to your job, and oftentimes, is that the good stress? No, that's the bad stress. That's the distress. Paul says, what about distress? If you're deeply distressed, does that mean that you're no longer tethered to or connected with the love of Jesus? No, he says persecution, which is harassment because you love and you follow and you believe in Jesus, which would resonate with the people who got the scroll and the writing originally from the Apostle Paul, and they begin reading these, and they were being persecuted deeply for following Jesus. Their lives did not look like their neighbors. Their values did not look like their culture. And I'll say this based on the Word of God. If you labor to be faithful to Jesus, 
If you believe what the Bible says, you are going to be persecuted in one way or another. If you believe what the Bible says about judgment, about righteousness, about sexuality, if you believe those things in our culture, true or false, you will still be persecuted. He says, has that separated you from the love of Christ? What about famine? which was rampant in this day and age, in this season, where uh, pestilence and drought would sweep through and there would be no more food. And Paul's saying, like, has that uh, situation that you're in and famine separated you from Jesus? What about nakedness? Just did not even have enough money to buy clothes and so had shamed. Has that separated you from the love of Christ? What about danger? And that word means danger. <laughs> if you're in any danger, has that separated you from Jesus? Uh, sword, which is a, a, a metaphor to say persecution that leads to death which many of the people that read this letter for the first time would face the sword. They would be killed because they followed Jesus. And Paul is saying, has that separated even them from the love of God? And then he quotes Psalm chapter 44, verse 22. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so what this presents, you, you, need, you need to understand this. This presents to me two very paradoxical ideas that not only happen in Christians' lives, but they're true throughout all of Christian history. That, that, like that list, can we just agree the list that Paul just ran, that's not a good list? Can we agree to that? That's, that's bad things. Like tribulation, we don't like that. Distress, don't want that. Persecution, don't need that. Like these are bad things. And so like it's this, and, and, and he's saying that the, the, the psalmist, that David in Psalm 44, is like, that's our story. Like, we're just, we're facing difficulties. And so the paradox is this. How can those things be true simultaneously with us being tethered to and connected with the love of Jesus? There's a theologian that I want to read what he says about this. I think it's very helpful. He says this, suffering and persecution, and I think Anything on that list you could add in there. Suffering and persecution, they are not mere evils which Christians must expect and endure as best they can, but they are the scene of the overwhelming victory which Christians are winning through Christ. Which is so strange because if you look at Christianity, there is no reason we should be here because that list of things is our story. That's our, that's our heritage. Christians have been persecuted for 2,000 years. They have faced tribulation and distress, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And how in the world is it that in, in, in the face of all that, we're somehow this force that cannot be stopped and is taking over the world? Those things are not at odds with each other. They are, in fact, the same thing. It's like if you try to put out a grease fire with water, what happens? The opposite. That has always happened that when these things are poured out on Christians, the Christian movement tends to flourish. If you look at places on planet Earth right now where Christianity is spreading the quickest, it is where those things are taking place the most. If you look in Christian history, when, 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 the, when the, the movement of Jesus' followers has exponentially increased, it's when we have been put under pressure and faced the sword and endured persecution. Why? Because it has not separated us from the love of God. In fact, he, he, he like builds up this crescendo, and he goes through that whole list to say, have that, has that separated us from God? In verse 37, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What a dumb thing to say, right? 
Like, that just doesn't make any sense. He's like, I don't know, all our people are suffering, they're being persecuted, and we're, ta- we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And yet that's the story in Fox's Book of Martyrs, the opening chapter, it talks about this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And when the enemy of Jesus and the enemy of the church pushes all these things because it has not severed his love for us in all these things, not after all these things, not before all things, not even in spite of these things. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that word that he uses for more than conquerors. In English, it's, it's three words, right? More than conquerors. But uh, when Paul is writing this, um, it's one word. It's hypernikayo. Hypernikayo. Nikayo is conqueror and hyper is hypernikayo, right? And uh, so this idea of a conqueror was all throughout the culture of the Romans. So who would be reading this letter from the Apostle Paul? They understand the idea of conquerors because they had conquered. I mean, they were like the biggest, most powerful, wealthy empire that the world had ever seen. A few decades before this, Julius Caesar uh, marched and defeated an army that he was, he just, they should not have won the, the battle, and yet they did, and they expanded their territory. And he sent a letter back to his commander in Rome, and y'all know what the letter said, even if you didn't know the backdrop. He says, we came, we saw, we conquered. We're conquerors. Like you, the Romans were conquerors. The, the, the Julius Caesar, he was a conqueror. He was a, uh, a Nikayo. And so when Paul starts talking about this language of conqueror, people are like, yeah, I understand that. Like the Roman Empire. And Paul's like, yeah, kind of like the Roman Empire, only hyper. <laughs> hyper Nikayo. Kind of like, like that, the kind of small thing that Julius Caesar did to dominate the world with the Roman Empire. He's like, that, only better. <laughs> Because the Roman Empire, it's, it, it's gone. It, it failed. It fell. It was temporary. The kingdom that Jesus is building through Christians on planet earth is uh, what Hebrew says is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have a king that will never be dethroned. He set up a rule and a reign forever that for those who belong to Jesus in all these things, we are hyper We're more than conquerors because we're tied up in something that's never going to end. We're tied up in this movement where Jesus has guaranteed and promised victory. And then he just keeps crescendoing. And if you've ever read Romans chapter 8 just in one sitting, first of all, if you haven't, you should. It's it's unbelievable. And if you read it just in one sitting, then what you're going to find is that when you start getting around verse 35, 36, 37, 38, you're just going to get excited and like want to stand up and cheer because he's like getting to the top of the mountain of what it means to be a Christian. So he, he keeps ramping up. He's like, no, those things haven't separated us from the love of God. In fact, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, he says, well, I'm sure. I'm, I'm certain he's convinced that neither death nor life. So he ramps it up. Does death or life, and that just is the sum total of the human experience. Nothing in human experience can separate you from Jesus. Death or life. Christian, should you be scared of death? No. I'm not saying it's like the dying process. That's a different story. We don't have to be excited about that. But death does not scare us because it can, I mean, the biggest enemy that we have is death. And it cannot separate you from the love of Jesus. Jesus' love goes beyond this life. Death can't separate you. And some people are scared of life. 
Like they're, they're, they're scared of living, anxious about tomorrow and the uncertainty it brings. Paul is saying you don't need to be scared of death. You don't need to be scared of life. Nothing inside of the human experience can separate you from the love of God. He says nor angels nor rulers, which means angels or demons, which means there's nothing inside of the spiritual realm that can separate you from the love of Christ. He says nor things present nor things to come. Nothing now that you're dealing with, nothing that, you're, that you will face in the future, nor height, nor depth. And then he just throws in this last comment just in case you found some kind of random little thing that's like, ah, he didn't mention this. Then he just says, nor anything else in all creation. It's like when we're trying to teach our youngest son that God is powerful, and he's like, cool. Is he more powerful than Superman? You're like, yeah. He's like, okay. The Hulk, because he's more powerful than And he's got this whole list, and like, you're trying to name him off one, and you're like, Hudson, he's more powerful than anyone, everyone, everything, and all creation. That's what Paul's saying. Whatever you come up with, it doesn't matter. It can't separate you from the love of God, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He hasn't used the word, but what he's talking about is, is, is grace. We have been given something that we didn't earn. And so therefore, it is not up to us to keep it. It's up to him to keep it. It's based on him, his character, his promise, his performance, his covenant with us. I've told you many stories over the years about my grandfather, uh, most monumental man in my life, just an incredible godly man. And about two years before he died, I remember he was just a natural evangelist. I mean, he, he would share the gospel. He would talk about Jesus with anybody that would listen. And we were at my parents' neighbor's house up in Colorado one day, and I can still see him leaning on the side of his F-150 talking to the neighbor. And they were talking about about, about the gospel. He was talking to him about Jesus, and, uh, and this, this person had a very works-based understanding. And I, I'm just saying, like, if you believe that we earn anything, then there's a lot to fear, because if we contributed to it, then we can lose it. But if it's by grace, it's just something that was done for us and given to us, then you, can, you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. If you didn't work for it, you can't work against it, is what I'm saying. And I remember my grandfather saying something that I think is exactly what, what Paul is saying. And my grandfather was saying, listen, like, I, I, may, I have some good days and some bad days, some days when I'm pretty obedient, some days when I sin. And he said, I'm convinced of this. When I die, I will open my eyes and see Jesus. I will be with him forever. And I remember him saying, he said, it will not be because I kept my eyes on him and I kept my grasp on him. He said, it will be because he kept his eyes on me and he kept his grip on me. It is not in your power. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing because it's all in his hands and God has promised through giving Jesus that he will see it through to the end. So those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he called. Every single one that he called, he justified. Every single one that he justified, he glorified. We're just simple recipients of the most incredible transaction that has ever taken place. Our sin for Jesus' perfection, we get written in the will, adopted into the family, 
We get a place with Jesus forever that nothing can separate. So here's the closing that I have for you. If all that is true, which we're convinced that it is, live your life as if it's true. When you get anxious, preach to yourself Romans chapter 8. When you feel condemnation, preach to yourself Romans chapter 8. When you're tempted to fear about death, preach to yourself Romans chapter 8. Know that we have been accepted by God through the merit of Christ. So live your life in obedience, not trying to earn anything, but because we already have everything. Try to obey. Live your life in gratitude. Worship. Use your money. Use your resources to show the world that, in fact, God is who he says he is and that he says what he says. He, that he can do what he says he can do. Let me invite you to bow your head, to close your eyes, and I want to pray for us, but I invite you to join me just with your spirit and with your heart to pray as well. Father, even Romans chapter 8 is dry kindling on the heart unless the Holy Spirit ignites the flame. And so, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit continually in our hearts and in this church, God, to cause the words of God and your promises to come alive in our hearts, to set our anxieties and fears at ease, to give us incredible confidence, not in our ability or our merit, but in your love for us that you've demonstrated on the cross. God, and you went to such incredible lengths to demonstrate your love in giving the greatest thing, the most precious thing that you have, that nothing else should be in question for your intentions for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. God, I pray right now through your spirit for anyone in this room that has not given you their sin and put their trust and their faith in you as a Lord and Savior. God, that you would give them the faith to do that, that you would right now, you would call them and you would draw them and you would woo them into salvation. God, I pray that they would, even in this moment, God, that they would put their trust in you and you would change them and forgive them. Father, we love you. I thank you for these next few moments that we have as your people, as a church, to lift up our hearts and our minds and our songs to you. I pray, Jesus, that as you listen from your throne that you're pleased. Can we ask that you would do your work in us? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.